Monica and Kaya, and you're listening to the Black Aspiration Podcast. The Black Aspiration Project is a knowledge mobilization initiative that strives to ensure that the voices, experiences, and specific health concerns of Black communities are recognized, valued, and integrated into healthcare policies, practices, and support services. As part of this project, we have created a podcast series featuring different healthcare leaders, community members, and advocates for Black health, exploring the unique experiences, challenges, and resiliency of Black individuals in relation to their health and healthcare. Excellent. Uh, I'm Cornell Gray, and I'm an assistant professor in the Department of Gender, Sexuality, and Women's Studies at Western University. Um, I'm working with Kaya and Rika on this Black Aspiration Project, um, which is supported by a research mobilization creation and an innovation grant for sure created a research at Western University. And I'm really excited that we get to uh, open this podcast series with our featured guest for today. So today we're joined by Dr. Fatima Jackson-Bess, a proficient public health researcher specializing in mental health with particular emphasis on communities in both the Caribbean and Canada. With over a decade of dedicated experience in health research, knowledge, knowledge translation, pro project development, and project management, Dr. Jackson-Best brings a wealth of expertise, passion, and dedication to advancing Black healthcare initiatives. So thank you for being here today. Thank um, you all for having me. Thank you. Uh, so for the first question, uh, it's just a general question, but what stands between you and the world you wish to live in? Uh, so many things. Um, it's a great question. I would say that the main things that stand between me and the world that I wish to live in and hope to live in is justice. I think justice and the lack of justice that exists in our societies at so many dif different levels and aimed at so many different communities really is the crux of so many um, issues and so many barriers that we experience and that we face. Um, you know, racial injustice, gender injustice, injustice related to people's sexualities, religion, uh, sexual orientation, gender identity, etc. You know, if we thought about a more just world, and if we were able to create a more just world, I think that we would be in a much better situation. And I think that our world would absolutely be better because we would, you know, look at each other as being worthy of living in a liberated state and in a just society. Um, so your developing program of research at McMaster will focus on the mental health impacts of Islamophobia, anti-Black Islamophobia, and gendered Islamophobia in Canada. What are some changes you'd like to see by mental health care providers in Ontario to better address Black Muslim people and their needs? This is also a really good question. Um, you know what? I often talk about the need for healthcare providers to be aware and to be understanding of nuance. So, you know, when people walk into a, a healthcare environment, whether that's a psychiatric environment, um, you know, a primary care environment or any other kind of care environment, people read their one another's bodies, right? So, uh, you know, you can walk in you're perceived a particular way, whether that's based on your color, whether that's based on the fact that you are wearing a hijab or not, um, basically the way that you present. And so it's really important for healthcare providers to understand that a Black person can be a Muslim and not look stereotypically Muslim. Um, I get that a lot, like just living in the body that I live in, 
um, sometimes people are surprised to find out that I'm Muslim uh, because they perceive me to be something else, whether that's a Christian or a Rastafarian. And sometimes I am read as being Muslim. And so, you know, uh, people have a hard time, you know, um, they have sometimes healthcare providers can have a hard time understanding the overlap of identities. The fact that being both Black and Muslim presents an overlapping experience of injustice of different kinds of discrimination. So you can experience anti-Black uh, racism. So obviously we know that that's a kind of racism that people who are specifically Black experience from multiple levels of society. And then you can also experience Islamophobia, um, which is the experience, which is the experience of, of discrimination that's aimed towards people who are Muslim or who are perceived to be Muslim. And that makes a perfect storm of something called anti-Black Islamophobia, which has been coined by an amazing, amazing scholar named Delise Mugabo, um, which really speaks to the specific ways that Black people who are Muslim and who are perceived to be Muslim are, um, you know, discriminated against by both people who are non-Black Muslims and also people who are uh, non-Muslim people. So, you know, I would say that it's really important for healthcare providers to get to know who they're working with, to get to know what communities are experiencing, to know the different kinds of uh, anxieties and real-life stressors that Black people who are, for example, Black and Muslim um, are experiencing. So, you know, we're not just experiencing the the multiple um the multiple kinds of discriminatory acts that happen towards black people but also those that are impact that are affected and lodged towards muslim people um and the same thing goes for for women right so when you add that layer of gender on top of that whole uh you know identity then you're also dealing with sexism misogyny patriarchy and the specific ways that a lot of the times muslim women are are, for lack of a better term, reduced to specific roles of just being, you know, passive or um, oppressed or whatever it might be at that time. So really, you know, my program of research, I really want to explore those overlapping experiences and identities and the impacts that they have on, on mental health, because I know that, and I've heard anecdotally, um, and I understand that people will not go back to their healthcare provider if they're feeling like they've experienced racism or if they've experienced Islamophobia or the confluence of both and multiple. And healthcare providers absolutely need to know where where their where their clients are coming from and what their experiences are rooted in. Mm -hmm. That's thank you for such a uh, generous response, uh, Dr. Jackson Best. I'm wondering if I, if I could maybe ask a quick follow up mm -hmm. question, which may or may not be two questions. We'll see. But I I was. Wonder if you could maybe say a little bit about how you came to your particular research project in terms of you know focusing on mental health specifically, but thinking about the work that you've done, you know, and are doing in in the kind of health space, and I think one of your your last examples gets to this. There's a way that you know uh, Muslim folks, Black folks, uh, you know, we we go into these spaces seeking health. But they also, but there's a way that they end up being the, I don't know if agitators is what I'm looking for necessarily, but they also become a different kind of like problem that like worsen one's one's health, right? So I guess I'm wondering if, if like, what are the, you know, how might some of these institutions or spaces that we are going to to seek care are also actually enacting the harm rather than actually solving it, if if that makes sense as a as a as a question. If not, it, I 
Please. No, 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 no. It absolutely does make uh make sense. I'm gonna go with the easy question first, which is how I got to the program of research. <laughs> you know, I arrived at the program of research. A lot of the research that I've done thus far are extensions of my identity. So I'm a black Muslim woman. Um, and I have a lot of black Muslim women friends and family members and colleagues. And, you know, I was seeing a lot of research about Islamophobia, not a lot of research, I should, that's, that's being a bit um, overarching, but I was seeing research about Islamophobia come out. And I was writing this chapter for a book that's coming out next year. Um, and it was, it's all about Islamophobia. And I was looking for information. Well, the book's all about Islamophobia. And I wanted to write about this overlap of anti-Black Islamophobia mental health and gendered Islamophobia and just finding resources and information and citations it was so difficult and I was like you know this it, it, there has to be more up there and a lot of what I was finding was from reports uh you know based out of organizations or you know projects that were ongoing or had had gone on and I thought you know this is kind of showing me that there might be a gap in research when it comes to this particular topic Added to that, I have been asked numerous times, and I've done numerous times, and I've done numerous different presentations about anti-Black Islamophobia, gendered Islamophobia, and the impacts of mental health. And I always, you know, use as an example, in uh, I believe it happened in 2000, 2021 and 2020, if I'm not mistaken, there were two attacks in in Alberta that happened, um, uh, and it was, they were targeted towards Black Muslim women. Um, where women, Black Muslim women, were, you know, physically attacked in a, a mall, I believe was one of them, a mall parking lot, and in another public place. And when you read the headlines, you either the impression that this was a Black woman or this was a Muslim woman. You had to dig deeper and, you know, know people who were doing the advocacy around this work and the activism that they were actually Black Muslim women. And there's a particular kinds of, there's a particular kind of danger and there's a particular kind of experience that Black Muslim women experience, right? And so, you know, based on those those anecdotal uh, examples and based on my own identity, I knew that this was a topic that had to be addressed because there's not a ton of Black Muslim women in academia, unfortunately. And so I thought, like, who else is going to do it? Um, and even if other people are doing it who are not, you know, from the community, you, I have a proximity to the work that I think would give it a certain kind of understanding and a certain kind of flavor. So that's how I came to the program of research. And then added to that, in 2018, I published uh, a systematic review about Black Muslims in Canada. It was the first one of its kind. Basically, it, it consolidated research information, greater literature about Black Muslims in Canada. And there wasn't a lot of work about Black Muslims and mental health. And so, you know, just based on that, I knew that there was also going to be a gap in the research. So, you know, those are, I guess, you know, kind of a long answer of how I got to my program of research for sure. But all of my work has, you know, or most of my work has really, um, it's really been a part of, it's it's really been an extension of who I am. And I love that. I love being able to work with my communities. I love being able to amplify voices in our communities, amplify work in our communities, um, amplify issues in our communities and look for solutions or bring attention to it. So that's number one. Um, the second question about how might institutions be enacting harm? I mean, you know, Cornell, it's like, it's in the most sometimes insidious ways based on what I've understood and through research that that I've been a part of. Um, you know, like basically people talking about how they walked into a mental health uh, environment with their therapist and they had to explain anti-Black racism. Um, 
and you know they were being accused of being uh, paranoid about it or you know how do you how do you know that somebody's following you around in a store um you know maybe it happens to everyone so basically having to educate your mental health provider to be able to then so that they are then better able to serve you and i mean that's not why you come there everybody most people with their therapists have you know one hour or 50 minutes depending on what the setup is and if you're spending if you're spending a quarter of that you know, rationalizing and explaining things like anti-Black racism, that's a waste of the time. And so it's really incumbent on mental health care providers to educate themselves. And I've done a lot of uh, a lot of good education work with social workers and with uh, people who work in the industries. And there are a lot of really, um, you know, uh, people, there's a lot of people who are really keen on on developing their skills around understanding black communities and that has to also extend to muslim communities to black muslim communities right our our world is so diverse we're made up of multi multi hyphenate uh you know identities and experiences and if you're going to you know work in a diverse environment you have to know what that means and you have to know what sets people apart and also like the generational or the historical kinds of trauma that people experience, right? Um, and I can go on, if, I was just about to go off on a tangent there, but I'll stop. <laughs> but, you know, just even talking about like trauma-informed lenses that, you know, mental health care service providers talk about for Black people, a trauma-informed lens isn't just, you know, extend to your, your parents or even your grandparents. We can be talking about ancestors that you never met. Um, you know, and the experience of colonialism that you may have never had a direct experience with or enslavement that you may have never had a direct experience with. But that is part of a trauma-informed lens for some Black people. And so, you know, mental health care service providers and healthcare service providers need to understand that. They need to, they need to understand also the very fraught relationship that some Black people have with healthcare systems where there's no trust due to, you know, experimental trials, the Tuskegee syphilis trials, for example, you know, that creates environments where Black people are, are mistrustful of, of the healthcare environment, and you can't blame people, and you need to understand why that, why that's, why it is like that and where that comes from. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Thank you. Mm -hmm. All right, over to you, Rika. Thank you for that um, in-depth answer. Um, but my next question is, before you worked at McMaster, you worked with the Black Health Alliance leading the Pathways to Care project, which worked to improve mental health and addiction services for Black children, youth, and families. Could you tell us a little bit more about the project in your work at Black Health Alliance? Yes. Oh, my gosh. So Pathways to Care, that has been... That was like my small baby. Right now I'm pregnant with a real baby, but this was my actual, <laughs> this is like my first baby, I think. I started that work in 2018. Um, I had just come back from the Caribbean and finished the, well, I had just come back from the Caribbean and also just come off of my postdoc and had graduated, um, you know, a few years before. And I was looking for a position in Toronto, which is where I'm from. I'm born and raised here, but lived, you know, in Barbados and then I lived in Ottawa for a year and then I lived in Trinidad and Tobago for about a year working mainly um and anyway I was looking for a position where I could work within my community it was like I just came home and I had this real strong desire and pull to be doing work in my black communities and so I saw this position 
that was uh, being advertised at Black Health Alliance for the project manager of Pathways to Care, and it was all about youth mental health. And because I had done in Barbados a whole project about maternal mental health, Black, Black women's maternal mental health, I just thought that it was a nice kind of continuation um, of the topic. So, you know, maternal and maternal health and then child and youth mental health, it made sense. And so that project, you know, when I got my hands on it, they already had some funding from the Ontario Trillium Foundation. Um, at the time, the federal government had launched a federal level funding uh, available for people, organizations that were looking at the mental health of Black Canadians. We were successful in getting that. And so it really doubled our, our, our budget, basically, and we were able to scale it up. And what we did was a community-based participatory research project that was focused on improving access to mental health care support services for Black children, youth, and their families in Ontario. It was across six different cities, which included Toronto, Hamilton, Ottawa, London, Kitchener, Waterloo, and Windsor. We did qualitative research via focus groups. We also did quantitative research via a survey. We created something called a systems map, which basically mapped out across those six cities, available mental health care services and supports. We did all kinds of knowledge dissemination through health promotion. Um, we got hit with a pandemic in 2020. All of our research and everything went online, including our workshops and our webinars. And honestly, it's a testament to the amazing team that I was able to, to build and work with, uh, mostly Black, um, Black women. Uh, who, you know, were just really committed to the work and found ways around working, you know, virtually during a pandemic. And so we offered a lot of the, a lot of the research that we did, we did it online. So we did Zoom uh, focus groups. Our survey was obviously already online, which was great. Um, and our workshops and our webinars were also online. And of course, our maps that we built and that we shared were also um, web-based. So that was really helpful. Um, and yeah, it was just such a dream project. It's It's been it was the best five years of my life. It was like the largest privilege that I've ever experienced to be able to work within community and with communities so closely and also with young Black talent, young Black professionals who are so committed to the work. Um, and Black Health Alliance is amazing, amazing work. Uh, the project wrapped up in August of this year. So, you know, it's been like, it was, well, you know, before when I, when I was hired at McMaster in 2022, it became part of my research portfolio, which was really nice. Um, but it wrapped up in August of 2023. And so there's a little hole in my heart, you know, missing pathways to care, but we have lots of great publications about the work. Um, they're all available on my academia.edu webpage. And yeah, the work continues, right? It's going to continue through Black Health Alliance in a different capacity in a different way. And the work continues also through me because I'm still committed to mental health. I'm still committed to Black communities um, and, you know, just focusing on different parts of the Black community, whether it's here, whether it's in the Caribbean. Okay, so you mentioned that you live in Trinidad. Um, you spent a few years as a, research, as a research consultant with a Trinidadian NGO called I Am One, where you led a project called Your Story. Could you tell us a bit about the project and why sharing the lived experiences of the LGBTQ plus community in the Caribbean was important to you? Yes, so this was also a wonderful experience, um, an opportunity that I got just by, you know, working in the region. Like I said, I had spent about six years uh, living and working in Barbados. I was doing my PhD at the time through the University of Toronto. And I got to know all of these amazing queer activists and uh, feminist activists from across the region. 
and I had been invited to this um, to give a workshop about mental health and wellness at a, a annual conference called the Caribbean Women Sexual Diversities Conference. And so at that conference, I met people from, again, all over the Caribbean, Trinidad, Jamaica, St. Martin, Guyana, like every island you can think about, Dominican Republic, Haiti, et cetera. Um, and so I met some people from Trinidad from an organization or an NGO called I Am One. And when I finished my postdoc in 2000, well, I was kind of finishing my postdoc. Um, I had gone to Trinidad and they said, you know, we have this survey that we're, you know, we we've developed and we're looking for somebody to help us administer it and just scale it up and, 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 and just, yeah, just scale it up across the, across the, um, across the country and also through different, uh, in, in different also like more regional experiences. So at other conferences. And I thought like, this is an amazing opportunity. When else will I get a chance to work with an NGO in Trinidad um, doing a grassroots, you know, project like this. And so, I worked with them with for just under a year. And you know, the, the project not only looked at health, but it also looked at economics, looked at family structures, um, support, it looked at education, et cetera. Uh, and so I helped them to just figure out how to administer it, how to get more funding to scale it up, which they were successful in getting, and how to amplify the the research, how to amplify that kind of work. So it was really a holistic look at LGBTQ health in Trinidad and a little bit of a regional focus as well. So that was an amazing, amazing experience. And I just, you know, it was just a really important opportunity for me to be an ally to the community and to, yeah, just share my share my expertise and to do what I could to amplify the work. Uh, amazing. Thank you for sharing. Um, You're welcome. Uh, your advocacy work challenges mainstream discourses about health within Black communities. From mm -hmm. all your research projects and initiatives, which one was most challenging to work on and why? Mm. Oh my gosh, that's a hard question. Oh gosh, I don't know. I mean, they're all hard. <laughs> they're, they're all really tough because quite honestly, they're, every research project every every research project that it involves advocacy which in my line of work they all kind of do you will always come up against some kind of roadblock some kind of barrier whether it's you know a government that doesn't want to hear it or community that's hesitant to be you know responsive or whether it's you know internal mechanisms and an organization that's creating issues it's it's it can be really tough, but I would say honestly, there nothing tops doing a full-fledged community-based participatory research project in the middle of a pandemic, and not just in the middle of the pandemic, at the very beginning of the pandemic, literally the day that the COVID-19 pandemic was declared a pandemic, we were sending out our survey. And we were so scared, you know, like we we're like, is anybody like we ever of course we all thought the world was ending. Um, and so we we're like, who's who, who's gonna do a survey when we don't even know if we can breathe the air outside like it's just going to be important but i mean the wild thing about it is as we know is that mental health became such a hot button topic during the pandemic and we did so toronto was our pilot um city and we're a lot of us were from toronto or lived in toronto so we disseminated it through all of our networks and the response that we got from Toronto was like hundreds of survey respondents um people who you know felt like they had to 
respond to our to our work and and wanted to be a part of it in some way and we kept on getting people who were reaching out to us to you know figure out how can we partner how can we like what's your next steps how can we work with you etc and it's been like that really throughout the whole project for pathways to care um in different cities across the across the province so you know, it's it's it was hard though. It was difficult, and you know, when we we're doing our focus groups, you know, working the the original idea was like when we we're doing our focus groups, we we're going to go to you know Hamilton and do outreach with an organization that we we're partnering with, and then um, have in person focus groups once we had those connections. And it's like in a pandemic where you can't you have to social distance, you can't do all that, right? So we ended up working with community liaisons. Uh, people who were from these cities who connected us with individuals and it was really just like person by person and that was where the real community-based work came out and that's also where like the real relationships came out um, we were able to like you know create real friendships in some situations and real connections that we were able to keep going back to and where people could also come to us for support or for ideas or for connections so yeah I would say that that was probably the most challenging but it's nothing is impossible and honestly if you have the right team with you who have the right attitudes and you also have the right resources you know these things are not they're not insurmountable right um so i want to hopefully it's okay if i interject again mm -hmm. um and i think i might be leading into the the last question if that's okay kaya um so i'm thinking about the work that you did with you know pathways to care and thinking about care specifically as a concept, as a practice. You spoke a little bit about, the, you know, you worked with different kinds of uh, community groups, both in Canada um, and, you know, in, in the Caribbean as well. And so, and I mean, and earlier you were, you were thinking too about the fact that institutions fail our communities is on a beast way. So I guess I'm wondering if you could say maybe like what, does care mean to you? Like what does caring for black communities mean to you? And specifically thinking outside of institutions that, you know, might not have the, the capacity to do the kinds of work or may not be interested in doing the kinds of work that is necessary to uh, keep and maintain, you know, uh, maintain black people, black people's health. Um, and I guess the, the second part of the question is around this question of, well, what in our everyday, you know, daily lives, like what are some small things that our listeners can do to support like Black people, like health, generally speaking, but I mean, as far as your work, in your work is concerned, what, what, what might be a, a small action or step that people can take to support Black folks' mental health? Sorry for these double barrels questions. <laughs> it's most, but, it's absolutely okay. Actually, I'm gonna I'm gonna start with the second question because I want to get you to re-ask me the first question. Sure. Um, but I think that we think that the ways that we can black communities can, you know, highlight and prioritize and push mental health to the forefront is really by amplifying them like that's I think that's the first step like talking about mental health destigmatizing mental health you know I remember being in Barbados before I started my PhD I was in my master's and I was interested in doing research in the Caribbean and I remember going to Jamaica and Barbados as like kind of like you know places where maybe I could do this research let me do some 
let me do some feasibility, like, you know, meetings and not a study, but some meetings. And I just remember certain people saying like, oh, you want to look at maternal health, maternal mental health? You're never going to get someone to talk to you about that because if women here, if they're not happy about being a mother and they're not over the moon and they're not performing that, you know, it's so strange. And, you know, women don't want to be stigmatized by that. And I thought, well, that's going to be like make a really difficult <laughs> environment to create to do this project in. But when I got there and when I started the work, there were so many women that reached out to me and responded to my um, to my recruitment uh, posters and recruitment materials and were interested in talking about their experience. And, you know, that's a part of destigmatization, like letting people know that you're not you're not alone. This is something that's normal. It happens to a lot of people and it's OK to talk about it. So I think the first step really is and that's, you know, whether it's here, whether it's in Barbados or Jamaica or Trinidad, I think the first step is really talking about it. But then we also have to have action behind it. Right. So you know, making sure our governments are allocating, um, you know, the appropriate amount of money and fundings and, and budget percentages to mental health is like significant, right? Um, you know, there's, I can't remember the the percentage now, um, and I'm sure because of inflation it's gone up, but our governments spend like literally half of what is needed to, this is Canadian government, uh, literally spends half of what's needed um, to fund mental health. We know that mental health is not a part of our 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 universal health care. If you don't have insurance or you don't have money, you are most likely going to suffer. So we need to advocate for full transformation of our healthcare systems and our um, you know our healthcare insurance schemes to make sure that mental health is a part of it, that it's accessible, uh, that our mental health care providers are either culturally responsive or reflective of the cultures and ethnicities, et cetera, of the people that they're serving. Um, and we need to we need to participate in them, right? So we need to make sure that people who who need help and who need support are are accessing them and that they're long enough and that they're of high quality, et cetera. So, uh, you know, it's it's lofty goals, but when I think about, oftentimes when I think about solutions, people think, okay, well, you know, if you had, uh, you know, this amount of time or you were in a, a an elevator with this politician, what would you say? And I would say, well, how do you talk about transformation like in, in like a two minute elevator ride? That's what we need. We need full transformation of our systems. And without that, we're going to continue seeing these band-aid approaches that work for a little bit and then peter out. We need long-term transformation. And so I'm going to ask you to repeat the second question. Sorry, Quinn, now. Yeah, no worries. I mean, I actually think you 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 got there actually, but I was more so inviting you to think about, you know, what does it mean to, like, what does care mean to you, uh, I guess, in, in your work, in your life, um, as it relates to Black communities in, in particular? What, so, I mean, some of the things that you kind of teased out there had to do with questions of, like access and providing uh, resources that that you know that people can get the access to services and the supports that that they need. So I think you kind of got there in the end. But I guess mm. I mean if anything else that you wanted to, if anything yeah. mind, I mean feel free. Mm -hmm. Well, I you know I really like that question uh, about what does it look like to me because a lot of what I've done and a lot of what I do and a lot of what I want to do comes from a place place of love. And so when I think about care, it's rooted deeply in like love for my community. I love Black communities. I love being Black. I love serving my community. Um, I love being a part of my communities, obviously. I love Muslim people. I love being a Black Muslim. And so 
you know, when people, when I offer um, ideas or when I do this work, it comes from a place of care that's really rooted in love and self-love, but also community-based love. Because when I see, you know, young Black youth or parents talking about services that are not accessible, I think about my cousins, I think about my brothers, I think about my sister, I think about my my best friend's children. Um, that's why I think about it. And I think about, you know, how things how things were for me when I was a youth and how much more convoluted and difficult and different they are for youth now. And it's not to say that things are better, were, are, were easier back then. Um, I don't think that that's true. Things are just, things are just the way they are when they are, the way, when they are the way that they are. But, um, you know, people need, people need that care. People need that love. And they need to be, they need to know that there are resources out there that are specifically tailored and created for them. Um, and so, you know, when you're thinking about services that are created and tailored for a particular group of people, it's, that takes consideration. It takes love. It takes care. Right. So, yeah, I would say that, you know, my, my conception of care always has an ethos and a pedagogy, I think of, of love attached to it as well. That's beautiful. And I, I feel like that's an, an incredible way to uh to end the interview actually um so yeah i mean on behalf of kaya and rico and the black aspiration project team as it were uh thanks so much for your for your time and your generosity and your enthusiasm in responding to the the questions today we really appreciate it oh you're most welcome thank you so much for having me it was such a pleasure meeting all of you alika and kaya it's nice seeing you again cornell and congratulations on this podcast i love podcasts so i'm really excited to hear these Oh, that's, that's exciting. That's wonderful. All right. I'm back here. Thank you. You're welcome.